This podcast is sponsored by PCRT Live, April 28th through May 5th. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my usual co-host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Virginia, which is now vying for uh, Oregon as the most liberal state (laughs) in the union, I think, if the headlines are to be believed. Just a portion of Virginia. Just a portion of Virginia. Just the bit in your neighborhood, is that the... uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, we're... Fortunate, blessed today to have a special guest, an old friend of mine, uh, the Reverend Dr. Gerald McDermott, who was the Anglican Chair of Divinity at the wonderful Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, successor there to another old friend of mine, uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Gerald Bray. Um, Jerry reminds me of that, that kind of Anglican vicar that the 18th century sort of specialized in, where you'd have somebody who doesn't just write brilliantly on one subject, but writes brilliantly on a whole variety of subjects. Jerry is uh, author of what is probably, or is definitely, the definitive study of the theology of Jonathan Edwards. He's also written a a history of stutterers. Uh, Jerry is a remarkable polymathic individual, and there's so much that would be fascinating to talk to him about today. But we're actually going to talk to him about uh, not his most recent book. We discovered he's just had another book published, but a book that came out a few months ago on an extremely important topic. The title is Race and Covenant, Recovering the Religious Roots for American Reconciliation. Jerry's the editor. It's a collection of essays aimed at addressing that most touchy, sensitive, polarizing issue within American society, the issue of race and race relations. So it's great to have you with us uh, this morning, Jerry. Uh, Thanks for all the work you do. Well, Carl, you're so kind, and thank you for having me on, um, you and Todd. And I I just want to be fair to my co-author. I was not the single, but a a co-author of that book on Jonathan Edwards, Michael McClymond, who Uh, I think is the best historical theologian in the world, was my co-author there. And Michael, of course, did the superb two-volumed history of uh, of hell, eternal punishment, um, which yes. we have we've reviewed on this program, and oh, I think good. extremely highly of. He's a very yes. very sharp good. fellow. So yes, thank yes. you for for clarifying that. Yeah. Kicking off, Jerry. Obviously, uh, you know, if you want a quiet life and want to be left alone, <laughs> race is not the issue to put a collection of essays <laughs> together on. What motivated you to put the collection together, and and given the sensitivity of the topic? How did you choose the contributors? Not all of whom I would I would add just for our listeners. Not all of the contributors here are Christians. No, uh, no. So how did you? You know, what motivated you? What was the rationale for the selection of contributors? 
Well, it started in 2016, Carl. Uh, Mark Tooley, who's the president of the IRD, the Institute for Religion and Democracy in D.C., uh, and I were talking and we were noting that even though a Gallup poll in 2008, before Barack Obama became president, found that the majority of blacks and whites in the United States felt race relations were getting better. In 2016, after two terms of a black president elected by a majority of whites, uh, the same polls said most blacks and whites thought race relations were getting worse. So Mark Tooley and I said, you know, what's going on here? Why is race the number one domestic issue in this country in 2016 after two uh, presidential terms of a black man? And so we thought that one problem is, is that religion is not used enough to understand our racial problems in America and particularly, you know, the, the Christian faith, and particularly a concept that is absolutely foreign to most Christians today, but was part of the warp and woof of the understanding of Christians for most of the last 2,000 years, and that is this idea of the national covenant. Now, that term was, was not widely used, uh, except in the Reformed tradition, but it means that God deals with whole nations and not just individuals. Since, since the Vietnam War, much of the 20th century, most, most Christians have thought that God just deals with me uh, and that guy down the street. And he doesn't deal with a whole nation, qua nation. And this is the idea of the National Covenant. And, and Mark and I thought, why don't we have a conference and turn it into a book asking leading black thinkers and church leaders and, and white and Jews uh, how to understand this country under God in terms of race and what might be happening? How might this help us to work through the, this terrible problem of race in this country? And so we wanted to pick uh, leading Christian black thinkers and church leaders and other people of color, like uh, you know, a Hispanic thinker whom we have in the book and at the conference, and also some, some leading Jewish thinkers whom we knew, because you know, Jews have been a persecuted minority, have had a continuous history of persecution longer than perhaps any other people on earth. And they've done some serious thinking about the Bible and God and how he deals with nations, and particularly, of course, uh, the nation of Israel and then other nations who like to think of themselves in some relation to the nation of Israel. And, and so that's what um, led us, Carl, in choosing uh, these, these speakers and writers. There are 15 contributors in the book. Nine of the 15 are people of color. Uh, two are, are Jewish thinkers, as I just mentioned, and then a few of us white guys. Um, the book is excellent, by the way, um, just right off the bat. I, I was, as soon as I opened it, I was drawn in and was challenged. Um, I was encouraged at times, which was nice because this mm. conversation is so discouraging at the moment in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, one, one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, Carl mentioned, uh, you know, just the variety of, of contributors. W one of the things that I, I was really helped by, and this is leading to a question, what was um, the variety of people of color who, who have contributed to this book and how most of Americans have no idea who these people are. 
which really frustrated me. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's give them some proper due at this time. Who are the best, most, in your opinion, the best, most effective voices on the issue of race? Who themselves are are people of color? Who who, who out there is doing the best work on, on this issue? Well, good question, Todd. Um, your audience needs to pay more attention to these guys. So, for instance, Robert Woodson, who has a chapter in the book, and at the conference, and this was February 2019 at Beeson Divinity School in Sanford University, the conference, Robert Woodson was sort of a senior statesman of the conference. Whenever he stood up to speak during a Q&A time, all heads turned and listened to him. He's probably about 80 years old now. He speaks as a incredibly articulate 35-year-old, you might say, or 45-year-old. Um, he's a senior He's a senior statesman from the 1960s um, um, civil rights movement. And he's been working for the last 50 years on issues um, related to race, particularly school choice. And he's written in you know, the Wall Street Journal, he's written books, he's, he's, uh, he's interviewed everywhere, particularly in this last year uh, since George Floyd. Um, he, he gives uh, perspectives that we don't hear from anyone else. For instance, at the conference, he said, folks, I bet you don't know that in 1899, there were four public schools in Washington, D.C. Uh, three were white and one were black. And the students at the black public school uh, had test scores and achievement, um, uh, academic achievement higher than two of the three white schools. And folks, I bet you don't know that in 1940, blacks had a higher rate of marriage than whites on average. Black fathers took better care of their children on average than white fathers in 1940, long before the civil rights movement, when Jim Crow was at its height. So let's get a different view of the history of blacks in America. Then John McWhorter, who does not have a chapter in this book, he's not a Christian. Um, He's a linguistic professor at Columbia University. He's been writing some terrific stuff on race. Uh, In his most recent book, I I think everyone ought to uh, get, it's called The Elect. Now, now he's not a Christian, but he clearly grew up in in, in a Christian home. The subtitle is The Threat to a Progressive America from Anti-Black anti-racists. <laughs> um, Carol Swain, who does have a chapter in the book and has, has a poignant chapter, uh, uh, you know, talking about white supremacy and, and her own childhood. Uh, she is a black female Horatio Alger. She grew up uh, as one of 12 children in rural Virginia, grinding poverty, um, an alcoholic mother and raised by a stepfather who was abusive. At the age of 16, she was an unwed mother on a high school dropout. And she just retired from Vanderbilt University Law School. She, got, she was the youngest um, professor to get tenure at Princeton University. Uh, she says the current race na- narrative that America is systemically racist hurts young blacks particularly, because it induces them to give up and not try, and then they will not succeed. Um, Derek Green has a wonderful chapter in the book. He is a young black political scientist. People need to pay attention to Derek Green. He's being interviewed you know, in all sorts of places. Um, just go to Google, D-E-R-R-Y-C-K, Green. Um, Glenn Lowry is an economist at uh, Brown University, he needs to be listened to. 
Uh, he has a wonderful chapter on, in the book on what he calls transracial humanism. You know, basically going back to the colorblind ideal that the critical race theory has condemned and that the civil rights movement called for, that Martin Luther King called for this colorblind ideal, which, you know, in the current media uh, is thought of as wrong and unhelpful. Uh, and then a last name that I would recommend to your listeners, uh, a voice that people, that Christians particularly need to listen to, uh, was not at the conference. He doesn't have a chapter in the book, but he's a black Baptist theologian, Vody Bauckham, B-A-U-C-H-A-M. Uh, he's, he's the dean of a seminary in Zambia, but he grew up here in the States. Um, he's incredibly articulate, thoughtful Baptist Christian theologian. Uh, his latest book is coming out in a few days. It's called Fault Lines, and the subtitle is The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. And it's a major theological indictment of uh, critical race theory. So these are some voices that more of us need to listen to. I've, I've been so helped by McWhorter, by Derek Green. Um, I've, I've known Vody Bauckham in my early days as a youth minister when he was a young apologist speaking to youth groups. I've Whoa. had him in my church to preach and uh, he's wow. just a, he's a terrific, terrific guy. Yes. And, and, you know, and one of the things he says is he's, he's got the resume to be an angry um, black man. <laughs> you know, he was raised by yeah. a single mother in Compton and mm. um, his, his story is compelling yes. um, in those terms, but yeah, yeah, yes. that's a great list of people. And these are all people that were the, that if they were, from the left promoting anti-racism, everybody in America would know who they are. Oh, yeah. Because they'd be so heavily promoted. Right, right. Yeah. Because they're so thoughtful and so articulate. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. The yep. issue of the National Covenant, Jerry, you and I have, have emailed yes. a little bit about this. And um, I wonder if you could uh, articulate that or explain that a bit for our listeners. Because, you know, when people hear National Covenant, my mind, of course, goes to Scotland. 1638 <laughs> and you know mm -hmm. it has connotations of presbyterians putting baptists in prison out of love of course we we would only have done it out of love but it <laughs> it does have those kind of theocratic slash theonomic connotations and and more mm -hmm. in recent days of course this new term christian nationalism that's being used by mm -hmm. the left yeah. to just to scoop up anything that can have even the vaguest connection to, to white Christianity. Uh, yeah. What you've articulated to me on email is very different to that. And I think it would be very helpful mm -hmm. yes. for our listeners to, to yeah. hear what your take on the national covenant idea is. Right. Well, the basic idea of the national covenant, and like I say, most Christians in most of Christian history have believed this that God deals not only with us as individuals in, you know, for, for reformed Christians, the covenant of grace, but also with whole nations. Um, but only in this life. Uh, and sometimes in, and, and, and usually it takes a long time for God to deal with a, to, to discipline, to punish, to judge a whole nation for its sins. And most nations and all empires uh, are, are, are guilty of egregious sins, of course. But God does sometimes reward uh, whole nations for its stance for righteousness. Um, for instance, after England, having closed the door to Jews for several centuries, then opened the door to uh, Jews under Cromwell. Uh, why is it that the next few centuries of British history seem to have been uh, 
uh, well, were incredibly successful, even in worldly terms. You know, you look at the United States, we've got this great sin of um, slavery. Some would call it our national original sin. We have suffered. Uh, uh, One uh, thesis of this book, Race and Covenant, of most of the authors in there, is that our continual racial tensions is in part from God's judgment on, on slavery and Jim Crow. And, and so the idea is that uh, from the story of Israel, which of course is God's chosen nation, according to the authors of scripture, not only the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, God dealt with as a whole nation, as well as dealing with individuals. Uh, and God would reward Israel when, when she was righteous and renewed her covenant, and God would discipline and punish Israel and send her into exile at least twice. And, and so this idea of exile and return in a covenant, a special relationship that God has with a nation, and there are indications in Scripture itself that God has made covenants with other nations besides Israel, not in the same way with Israel. There's only one Israel, and, um, and I would argue that America is not a new Israel. But nevertheless, uh, it's, it's the idea that, that every nation is under the judgment and the providence of God. And one very helpful thing in this discussion is that there's the idea of transcendence, that, that we should appeal to standards beyond the social sciences, beyond political parties, which are the two uh, primary sources of judgment in this country today. Uh, to a transcendent source of value uh, that gives us an ability to discern in ways that no secular grid provides. So, you know, you know nations are all over scripture, and that's what a lot of us, uh, since we have been educated in terms of the Enlightenment, which is all about the individual for the most part, um, and particularly since the Vietnam War, when all ideas of God uh, having any sort of covenant with any sort of nation were destroyed by the elites of this country. And, you know, the, the elites have been educated by the professors and the professors have taught us and I, that any idea of America as having, you know, as having any sort of uh, transcendent approbation is, is, is the worst kind of nationalism, as you were saying, Carl. Uh, and, and as soon as you hear the word nationalism, you think of Hitler and the Nazis, and then more recently, uh, the elite's denunciations of Trump uh, and his narcissism. Uh, but when you look at Scripture, nations are all over Scripture. In Revelation 7, the eschatological church, um, the redeemed eschatological church is identified by nations. Um, in Revelation 22, it talks about the healing of the nation, uh, you know, of the nations, not just individuals, but of the nations, eschatologically. Uh, in, in Acts 17, when, when Paul goes before the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill, he says God determined the nations when and where people would live. So you and I and all your listeners, God has put into a particular family. But not only in particular families, God also has put each one of us into a particular nation for his own particular purposes. And I think one of his purposes is for divine diversity and beauty 
That is, Christ, as John Henry Newman taught, has infinite aspects. The beauty of Christ is infinite in its dimensions. And each nation, and a good way of thinking about nation these days is culture. Each national culture sees, uh, you know, when you look at the church and you travel around the world as I have, and, and as you guys probably have, and you visit uh, 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 different churches around the world, each national culture sees Christ in a slightly different way, sees a dimension of the beauty of Christ that I don't see in my America, that I haven't seen in my American culture. So um, God makes people different. God makes national cultures different in order to further display the infinite variety of the beauty of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, particularly in the Son, the Messiah. So, um, you know, the problem with uh, our understanding nations in the Bible and the National Covenant is that we have been so indoctrinated with the abuse of this biblical idea of national covenant that all we see is the abuse. That's all we can call to mind. And, and, but what we have to remember is the great hermeneutical principle that abusus non tolet abusum, that the abuse of something does not invalidate the good use of that thing. Look, we're all very familiar these days of, of abusive fathers, but does that mean that fatherhood as an institution is uh, to be dispensed with? Woe unto us, we see the uh, tragedy that results from the rejection of, of the principle and the institution of fatherhood. So too, higher education. We see the massive abuse of higher education all around us. But, the, the, but does that mean that higher education in and of itself uh, is not a great institution that, that, that in some sense is God-given? So too, National Covenant. And so too, the idea of nations and uh, national, proper kind of nationalism. Uh, so actually, it's the idea of the national covenant that is our best theological protection against the abusive, evil nationalisms of the 20th century, uh, and as Carl was saying, the 17th century uh, suffered from. It was interesting when I was reading your chapter on that in the book, I, I, I was fascinated by it. And it was so helpful for me because on the one hand, it avoids the pitfalls, and Carl mentioned, you know, theonomy. It, it avoids the pitfalls of theonomy. It certainly avoids the pitfalls of, you know, what's being uh, derided as quote Christian nationalism these days. And yet, it takes seriously those texts of Scripture that clearly indicate that nations, even in the New Covenant, nations are still accountable to God. Yes. And and I've I've and this is where I've struggled some with. Um, some of my two kingdom brothers. And I, and in a lot of ways, I lean into two kingdom on a lot of issues. However, the reason why I can't go full on there is because of the New Testament texts that clearly indicate that nations are accountable to God. And, and, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the eschaton and, and revelation chapters 21 and 22, you have the Kings of the nations bringing their glory uh, before the throne. Now that means something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and if nothing else, it means that that it's not just what individuals and not only what the church does that, that matters, but also what nations do, because they're no less accountable to God than the church is. Now, there's a different kind of relationship there, we would say, but but nations and kings are accountable to their maker, whether they whether they recognize or honor God or not. Yeah. And so that was really helpful for me 
And I think it's something that, that my Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, ought to read as what I think is a good corrective to some of the problems of, that, are, that are inherent in theonomy. And the absence of national accountability to um, transcendence is the surest re uh, recipe for national despotism. Mm. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. Now, I, having you here, we've got to address this issue of, of critical race theory. And we're hearing a lot about critical race theory. I'm a PCA pastor and we have mm -hmm. ministers in the PCA that are saying, hey, you know, uh, critical race theory can be really helpful. Uh, you know, there's a lot of meat on those bones. Leave out the bones, but pick off the meat. It can be a good interpretive grid for certain passages of scripture. It can be a good grid for us to have a good cultural hermeneutic, et cetera, et cetera. And some of us are, are deeply troubled by that. I mean, we, we, we know how to take meat off of bones. We do that every day in dealing with all sorts of things. But there's something about critical race theory that has some of us very, very concerned that it's, mm -hmm. that it's that meat off of the bones is probably not a good analogy for it. Maybe water from a poisoned well might be, in my mind, a better analogy. But mm -hmm. you, you mentioned John McWhorter earlier, who is an essential mm -hmm. voice on the issue of race right now. He has called critical race theory, you know, wokeism, so to speak. He's called it a religion. And I think he's made a compelling case. I wonder if you could kind of just unpack that a little bit. You know, your thoughts, McWhorter's thoughts on critical race theory, wokeism as functioning with a lot of basic religious categories and why that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, um, I do not agree that critical race theory is helpful. Uh, it is inherently deceptive, and it's a false religion, and McCord is right about that. Mm -hmm. um, what little truth there is in critical race theory uh, is already there in the gospel. Right. And, uh, for example, I mean, the one truth, well, there's only two truths, I think, that we can find in critical race theory. And number one, that racism is evil, it's sin. Mm -hmm. Well, the gospel already tells us that. And number two, that... Um, Race is an artificial construct that is contradicted by both biology and anthropology. The problem is, is that critical race theory uh, says that in uh, half a breath, and then with a thousand breaths speaks of race as uh, not only sociological, but actually biological reality. So it contradicts itself. So, um, you know, let me just, you know, explain to your listeners, a critical race theory started in the academy, in the legal academy back in the 1970s, in the law schools. Uh, and it said the civil rights movement didn't go far enough. The civil rights movement was wrong to teach colorblindness. And the affirmative action of the 1970s actually started in 1967, uh, lets whites off the hook. And they shouldn't be left off the hook because whites... Uh, now, here again, you get back to the self-contradiction. Whites are the great problem not in, in, in not only America, but uh, the world. Whiteness is the great source of evil in not only America, but all over the world uh, because of the history of colonialism. Uh, so, you know, just very briefly, the basic ideas of um, the basic tenets, the, the, the most important tenets, are that racism is ordinary, pervasive, and systematic. They also use the more common word systemic in America. Uh, two, 
race is a social construction, as I said, with no basis in biology or genetics. They contradict themselves on that. Three, they say there's a unique voice of color so that people of color must be presumed to have competence. Four, the liberal order is fundamentally oppressive, which means all of the following are complicit. They say enlightenment ra uh, rationalism is fundamentally oppressive. Uh, neutral principles of law. Neutrality is oppressive. The idea of merit is oppressive. Uh, five, uh, as I said, colorblindness should not be our ideal because it's actually a tool of oppression, colorblindness. Um, six, white privilege is a reality and is at the heart of systemic oppression of people of color. And finally, seven, minorities should not be expected to fit into existing American society, such as giving up the priority of their native languages. Now, I would say taken together, this not only is extremely unhelpful and Christians have, have nothing really to learn from it, uh, but it distorts Christians' thinkings, uh, thinking. It distorts their understanding of the gospel because what it does is it presents a false gospel. And they know Calvin, following Augustine, said that all human beings are fundamentally religious. You know, you know, Calvin's census divinitatis, you know, Augustine, you know, famously, of course, said that that uh, God has created us restless until we rest in him. Um, and and critical race theory is functioning as this plug for the whole in every human heart to want to be religious, to uh, want to have a kind of missionary fervor, to want to have a source for morality to want to have meaning for history. Um, you know, critical race theory supplies all these things right. in, uh, um, in the way that Marxism does. Mm -hmm. And no surprise, because two of the three founders of critical race theory are Marxists mm -hmm. and self-described. Um, so, you know, critical race theory really has its, redefines the gospel. Uh, I was going to say has its own gospel. Um, with its own basic human problem and its own solution to the basic human problem. So the basic human problem, obviously, for, for critical race theory is racism. That's the key to understanding all of human history. Racism and uh, Western liberalism, of course, feeds or 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 uh, certainly supplies and maybe is the origins of uh, modern racism um, and the solution is liberation, not salvation, but liberation, keyword, that comes when woke whites join people of color in tearing down the existing system and replacing it with new structures run by people of color. And so because people of color have competence, I mentioned that before, their new structures will satisfy all basic human needs. I mean, that's a whole gospel right there. You know, the fundamental human problem and the perfect solution to the fundamental human problem. Uh, you know, it also has a, um, you know, critical race theory redefines truth in its pursuit. And this is where, where Christians get confused and Christians get uh, deceived. Um, they say truth comes from below and is found in the lived experience of people of color. And since people of color have this presumed competence, their stories are true in ways that all other narratives are untrue. And their stories, 
this, this critical race theory narrative of history becomes the criterion which judges all other claims to truth, beauty, and goodness. Well, I mean, we Christians, historically, a historic Christian faith says truth comes from above, not from below, in a person who has given us the overarching narrative that judges all other narratives, all other stories, no matter what experience has right. given rise to those stories. You know, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There's no race of presumed competence. God shows no partiality to one race over another. God's truth is not racialized, which critical race theory explicitly says. And uh, also, you know, critical race theory redefines the moral life. So it's a kind of salvation by ideology in which virtue is having the right view of racism. And the moral life is, is activism against liberal societal structures. So the disciples of critical race theory, and many Christians now are caught up in this, uh, they think their number one jo job in life, if they're to be moral, is to join the fight against social and economic systems that are said to pervade every facet of society, and they're all supposed to be, they're all claimed to be systemically racist. So what's important morally is the fight against structures outside the self, not the spiritual forces that tear the self away from God. And it must recognize uh, in the moral life, and Christians, too many Christians have taken this up, that the center of the moral life now is the recognition that whiteness is perhaps the greatest source of evil on the planet. Yeah, it's original sin in this religion of, of critical race theory. There's penance, um, not repentance, yeah. but yeah. penance, and there's ultimately no forgiveness. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's destructive. It's incompatible with the gospel. It's not helpful for the gospel. It's not an interpretive grid to help us appreciate or understand the gospel. It's none of those things. It's a false gospel, and we can't make peace with it. Well, I, I mean, obviously, this is a conversation that, <laughs> that needs to be had and needs to continue. I, I want to say our, to our listeners, um, please get uh, this book, Race and Covenant, Recovering the Religious Roots for American Reconciliation. I will say a couple of things about the book. It is, it is clear. It is compassionate. It, it, it goes straight ahead into these issues of race, of our, of our national wound over, uh, over national sins. Um, but uh, it does not fall into the, uh, the dangerous pitfalls of critical race theory categories. And, and therefore, it ought to be read. Um, it ought to be read by Christians. It ought to be read by non-Christians. And we urge you to get it. If you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, we're going to be giving away some copies of Race and Covenants, uh, edited by our guest today, Gerald McDermott. And we highly recommend this book. You can uh, register on our website to win a free copy. And so go there, uh, make a donation uh, to the Alliance while you're there. And um, let's continue to labor uh, to bring the right voices into the foreground on this issue and to work to ignore the unhelpful voices and to promote those voices that are helpful to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters. And this is a book that will help you do that. And so, um, Jerry McDermott, thank you so much for coming on and uh, wading into this volatile but highly important subject with us today. Thanks so much for your time. 
You are welcome. And Todd and Carl, I really appreciate you having me on. Well, we're grateful for your work. Grateful for your work. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll look forward to being with you next time. The ink is black. The page is white. Together we learn to read and write. A child is black. A child is white. The whole world looks upon the side. A beautiful side. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. You know, you you chose as your your most recent book something that has no controversy around it. You know, race. You know, you went the safe route, right? <laughs> well, uh, actually, it's not my most recent book. My m- most recent book just came out the other day, and it's it, it's on Jewish roots of Christianity. And I sent Carl. A, oh, you said I've not checked the review a, yet. I got the link down to that, read this weekend. But it's cutting edge scholarship on what the best scholars, Jewish and Christian, are are saying about the Jewish roots of Christianity. And it's What's the name that, of the book. Uh, it's called Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity. <laughs> it's, What's uh, it about? You went for the uh, sexy title, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's a very clever title, isn't it? I mean, just, just a witty, witty title, you know? This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, presenting Delighting in Our Triune God, the 2021 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, live streaming on Facebook and YouTube April 28th through May 5th. It's PCRT Live, featuring Michael Barrett, Jonathan Landry-Cruz, David Garner, Richard Phillips, Jeffrey Stuyvesant, and Todd Rester. The Trinity is quintessential Christian doctrine, yet we live in a time when increasingly few believers are well-informed about it. The Reformed faith has placed the Trinity at the very center, so don't miss this timely and important event. Delighting in our triune God, live streaming on Facebook and YouTube, April 28th through May 5th. No registration is necessary, but for the conference schedule and links to join in, log on reformedevents.org. That's reformedevents.org.